Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Max. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We are live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Friday, the 16th of February, coming up on the program. Questions over the new comprehensive student tertiary funding model. How consumer trends have changed in the 30 years of democracy. Why female talent is still underutilized in the South African workplace. And how rooibos tea has entered the gaming space. Let's start with education and as universities and institutions of higher learning reopen their doors to thousands of students, one NGO says we should be cautious of the systemic crisis facing the sector. The introduction of the comprehensive student funding model and increases in accommodation caps are not enough to address the structural vulnerabilities that prevail in the system, says Mafuz Rafi, who is a researcher at Equal Education. He joins me now. And... Where principally then are your concerns? Look, it is a welcome step to be improving funding and improving access to people who generally can't afford the high costs of higher education in this country. But we're worried that there isn't a clear plan to adequately fund this model, especially given the problems that uh, NSFA students had been experiencing last year and look to be experiencing this year as well. So in other words, there is concern that the plan is there, but there's no money available. Indeed. We know that um, last year there were severe problems with maladministration, uh, random defunding of students, and budget cuts predicted to NESVAS. And so expanding this model in a time of general government austerity, it seems to be like an electioneering step without really being a sincere commitment to improving access to education and improving the lives of students. So what clarification is needed and what immediate steps do you believe government and educational institutions need to take in order to throw more light on the subject and mitigate the issues that you've raised? Look, definitely needs to be transparency around how this program will be funded uh, in the long term. And a sincere commitment to fixing the problems that are widely reported around NESFAS maladministration, corruption. Uh, we know that currently there's a severe accommodation shortage because NESFAS changed the accommodation accreditation process and hundreds of thousands of beds which were previously accredited through the university systems are now being delayed in getting accredited mm-hmm. by NESFAS. And so that's also something that immediately needs to change. There's already a, a crisis occurring in various universities, including CPUT. Notwithstanding your concerns over the funding, do you think that this new model is going to go any way in addressing the needs of the so-called missing middle? Look, there's a lot of risks with the model because it's also a debt, imposes debt on, on precarious students, people who are not really 
from wealth backgrounds, you know, the missing middle are generally uh, from households earning less than 600,000. And, and if you have several siblings, that could be a poor household. So issuing loans to them is welcome in getting them a foot in the door. But after they graduate, they are burdened with the debt that they might not be able to service, especially given the rates of unemployment in this country and the, the lack of job creation and economic growth. And of more concern, and it leads into your worry about funding, is that there's a $3.2 billion cut from the higher education budget anyway. So whichever way you skin this one, it's going to have a negative long, long-term impact on the quality of education, isn't it? Indeed, it seems like the government is trying to rob Peter to pay Paul and I mean, that's an unsustainable way to to go about expanding access to quality higher education in this country. So what thoughts then has Equal Education had in terms of addressing the well-documented issues with NESVAS? You've already raised corruption. We know about widespread maladministration. We've referenced funding shortfalls. Where is reform most necessary in order to restore effectiveness and I guess, integrity. Um, Look, uh, government and uh, parliamentary oversight is a really uh, crucial point, and we need to get these institutions working so that they're not political checkboxes and not used for electioneering purposes, but actually instruments where the public can be involved and have democratic control and oversight to ensure that policies are delivered upon. Equal Education has engaged uh, several times with the parliamentary committees especially around the issue of of austerity in basic education, trying to ensure that the budget is more democratic, to ensure that social protection is there, and to ensure that education funding is at a level that can service uh, quality education to all learners. And I think more of this needs to be done. We're working with a range of different civil society coalitions to ensure that austerity doesn't hurt the poor, that the fiscal consolidation protect socioeconomic rights, including the right to education. And really, this is, this is something that we're wary of in the upcoming budget and something that needs to be given a lot of attention so that people do not, poorest people in this country do not pay the, the high, high costs of, of decreased government spending. And you'll agree with me, those are very noble intentions, but inevitably the austerity measures that you refer to are going to have a negative impact on the provision of a quality education. It's going to take a long time uh, before we get this right. Look, uh, undoubtedly, it's a tightrope to balance. There is a uh, government debt has been increasing and debt service costs are a serious uh, burden on the government budget. I think we need just to be a bit more careful about the, the way that we manage austerity, the way that we manage these fiscal consolidation measures needs to be a bit more targeted so that it's not across the board, so that it doesn't disproportionately affect the poor and maybe um, targeted increases to taxes that are progressive, that maybe a bit more strain on the business sector, but on wealthiest wealthier areas, uh, sectors of our economy, we know we're one of the most unequal societies in the world. So we should be really careful and targeted in, in the, the way that we cut spending and in the way that we raise taxes so that we don't exacerbate some of the deep-seated problems facing our mm. country. And all of this, as all of this, as you suggest, is uh, predicated on better parliamentary oversight, uh, which is lacking at this time. Why do you think that is? Look, I think the political conditions in our country, we know it's a tenuous time for the ANC, who have by and large enjoyed, up until now, a 
good majority in Casanova with lots of things that the public wouldn't have otherwise wanted. And that time seems to be coming to an end. There's a lot more voice for opposition. There's a lot more appetite for change. And I think that will be reflected in the, mm-hmm. the national elections this year as well. All right. Uh, Mafuz uh, Rafi from Equal Education. Thank you very much indeed for the explanation. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, 2024 marks the 30th anniversary of South Africa's democracy, and much has changed in the consumer landscape since 1994. The UCT Liberty Institute of Strategic Marketing has just finished an in-depth analysis of income distribution within the South African population to measure impact and change. With me now is Paul Egan, Director at the Institute. Paul, a very warm welcome. And firstly, why was it important to undertake this research right now? So I think there's a lot of noise. So, for example, when stats say say that the average income in South Africa is 25,000 rand a month, that is potentially misleading. Also, you know, we hear about these broad strokes in terms of companies saying, you know, we're going to target the middle market, we're going to target the upper market, but no one's actually defining what they mean. So what we did is take one variable, which was household income, and you can ask, why do, why do we use household income? Well. If you look at stats to say data, and you look at higher income brackets, they tell you, you know, how many um, people are, are men and how many people are women. Mm. And there's an overwhelming skew towards men. Um, but if you were to go to an upmarket shopping center, I can guarantee you that the skew is, is not 80% men, possibly the other way. So, so we looked at household income and then we looked at what's happened over time. So we took government's own breaks. So they, they use things like if you're earning under three and a half thousand rand per month as a household, uh, then you qualify for what's called a housing subsidy or generally known as an RDP house. And then if you're earning 8,000 rand or less as a household, then you qualify for a child support grant, which is by far the biggest form of grants in this country. And then we looked at where does government support end? And it ends at um, households earning 22,000 rand or less. And that's when you qualify for what's called a FLIS or a, a gap market housing subsidy. So we use these income breaks and we found this picture which has changed, but also explains a lot about you know what we see around us. So I remember when LSMs were around, they talked about the emptying out of the lower LSMs. And what we can see is that over time, and we're able to go back to 2012, we can see that the number of people living in households earning less than three and a half thousand rand a month has has declined significantly. However, there's still 17 million people who are living in those households. Of course, there's an inflationary effect. But what we've seen is every single segment, and there has been population growth, has increased. So, you know, we have 18 million people, 19 million people earning or living in households earning between three and a half and. Mm. 8,000, etc. But the picture we see is um, uh, we see about 15% of the population responsible for about two-thirds of all consumer income, whereas on the other side, we see you know, the two-thirds of the population only responsible for a third of all income. So um, that's the income inequality. And what our study does is it breaks it down and visualizes it so we can actually see what South Africa looks like when we break it down by household income. So, Paul, in terms then of purchasing power and access to goods and services, very broadly, 
are consumers generally in a better or worse position compared to 1994? I think it's, it really depends where you're sitting. So if we look at the lower income bands, um, there's two dynamics at play. Firstly, in terms of main source of income, it's either grants or it's working in the informal sector. So on the one hand, the informal sector means that uh, what you earn from month to month will go up and down. And also we know that wages are low. If you are in that kind of bracket, then you're very exposed to things like food inflation, which is going up and down. The graphs are way bigger than what we see for CPI. So from from any given month, your your situation, because your main cost will be food and transport, may change, but you will certainly be under duress. If we look at the the top bracket, so if you look at households earning over 75,000 rand a month, um, we've seen an increase. We've seen an increase in taxpayers in, in the higher income brackets. What that's telling us is um, what economists refer to as a skills bias trajectory. So the fourth industrial revolution, this is companies requiring higher and higher skills. And we hear about skills shortages. And what we see is the incomes of the people at the top is actually going above the average and, and often significantly above the average. It's, it's in the middle where we're seeing a lot of stagnation. We hear terms like the missing middle. We're seeing wages not keeping up with the average. We're seeing inflation effects. So every grouping um, has a different experience of inflation because of the income skew. So the, the, the basket that they use probably represents the 95th percentile, um, their typical shopping, as opposed to further down the ladder. Right. But certainly with the inflationary shocks in terms of transport, fuel and food, there's certainly a lot of consumers under duress. So let me extrapolate then and say, given the trends that you've just outlined and the changes identified in the analysis, are you able then to give us some sense about the future of retail or at least purchasing in South Africa as we move beyond 2024? So that's an interesting question. I mean, what retailers, when we speak to a lot of retailers, they talk about saturation at the top. So they can see a lot of uh, growth in terms of incomes, um, but still a small number of people and households growing, but there's a lot of competition there. Um, we hear also about companies trying to move down the ladder, rebranding, trying to appeal to lower income segments. But what we see there is, is numbers in terms of number of people, number of households, but in terms of spending power, the proportion of all spending power, it's significantly less. But having said that, if you were to, it depends on the category you're looking at. So there'll be certain categories where in the poorest bracket, that is where the main market is. So it really depends where your, what your product is, what your service is and what you're aiming at. And final one then, and very briefly, would there be policy recommendations maybe that emerge from the study that could help address this income equality and support consumer welfare in South Africa? So what we've seen is is from jobs perspective, we've seen the informal sector soaking up a lot of, I guess, livelihood opportunities. Um, having said that, they're quite precarious. They're often me too businesses. So you see 10 people in a row selling oranges. They're offering the same product. I guess it's where what we've termed working class and working poor. So this bracket between three and a half thousand rand income and, and 22,000, that's often referred to as the, the missing middle. Is there a way to create more jobs 
for that particular group. And, you know, that's where perhaps investment, mm. manufacturing, infrastructure development may stimulate that grouping. But, it, but what's absolutely clear is we're also falling behind on education. So if you look at South Africa as a comparison, comparison to, say, Vietnam on, on things like maths and science, we are failing dismally. So the advice is if you want to improve your economic opportunities, it would be one, to get a tertiary qualification. And secondly, dare I say it, mm. is team up. So you've got two incomes in your family, and that's going to increase your um, economic right. prospects. But the education system, um, the infrastructure, um, dare I say it, the electricity are all contributing to a lack of investment, a lack of growth of those sort of middling jobs, which would improve the lives of thousands of millions of South Africans. Well, Paul Egan, it's a very valuable study, and thank you very much for your time. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Now, a new report is finding underutilized skilled female talent could address the country's skill shortage. The findings of South Africa's largest working women report sheds new light on the challenges and opportunities surrounding female participation in the workforce and also provides significant recommendations for businesses to address the country's skill shortage by tapping into underutilized female talent. More now from Philippa Geard, who is founder of Recruit My Mom. Philippa, welcome to you. And firstly, what are the key factors then contributing to this underutilization? The underutilization comes in terms of the context that we find ourselves in South Africa. And I'm going to just uh, paint the picture of the context in order to answer the question is, is that we have a massive skill shortage in South Africa, as we know, second crisis to our economic growth compared to um, only second to load shedding. And what we're seeing is, is we have more female graduates uh, coming out of tertiary institutions and more females entering the workforce than we've ever seen before. In addition to which, uh, we're finding across Africa more and more STEM graduates are are growing. So 47% of all STEM graduates across Africa are now female as well. And when what the study finds is is that as women progress in their careers, is is that 49% of them at least are taking a pause somewhere along in their careers, and largely due to the fact that they've got dependents. And they start to then fall off in their careers. So they take a break, they come back, but they end up being what we call the missing rung in the ladder. Mm. And if you look upwards to where seniority is in terms of where people are in executive positions in South Africa, we've got a very, very tiny percentage of women sitting in executive positions in South Africa. And what the report's saying is is that you've got this increased number of educated women entering the market, yet we're losing them along the way, and why? And what we're saying is, is there's barriers to entry, they're looking for financial reward. We've, we know that there's pay discrimination, there's lack of internal opportunities. Also, one of the findings is, is ways that companies can help women work through those career pauses by retaining them through flexible practices. And inflexible practices definitely came out of the report as something that businesses can look mm. at as an opportunity to attract and retain. All right, lots, lots to talk about, Philippa, but more broadly, as you paint this picture, it's a real oh. indictment on the current workplace environment and culture in this country. So what does business need to do to address this? 
So first of all, we look at the barriers. You know, what are the barriers that women are seeing? And to address it, first of all, what are the internal opportunities for growth? So have a long-term strategic plan as to how you're going to attract and then retain women all the way through the various stages of their careers so that you can develop them into senior management levels. What does that, plan, lo- that, what does that plan look like? So that would be implementation of particularly flexible working. So hybrid working came out as number one in terms of what people are looking for. So the assumption often is is that women are looking, particularly mothers are looking for part-time work. Overwhelmingly, the report showed actually people want to work full-time, but they are looking for work in a hybrid manner. And that's because they're looking for the social interaction. They're looking to be part of the office situation, but they don't want to be full-time in office. So look at flexible work policies, look at opportunities for growth, Look at networking and mentoring opportunities that will help women feel included and have this opportunity to be able to go through the full um, career spectrum all the way up to seniority. That's another one that that came out really um, as being important. Um, And particularly have a look at how one can even attract people back who've had career pauses. So, you know, they have had the skills They've got the skills. They've taken a pause. They may be slightly out of sync with what's happening in the tech space. But what we've seen, particularly in tech world here, is is if you can attract people who've been, for instance, a SAP project manager, they've taken a career break and you bring them back into the workplace. All you need to do is update them on the tech, but they've got all the other Mm. skills and experience. So there's just different strategies that businesses can adopt to to do this. Sadly, conventional wisdom would suggest that in attracting women back into the workplace, uh, the sense would be that they have not kept up with developments and therefore would be of of, of some risk to an organization. Obviously not true, but uh, it would be a concern. Yes, and that's where, you know, I I do believe that it is a... It's not. It's partly valid in that they will need some kind of updating on the tech, but in terms of the the fundamentals of how do you manage people, how do you manage a project, how do you engage with clients, all of the stuff that comes through experience, that's all there. Um, but all they need is a couple of months, six months mm. probably to catch up on the tech. And returnships are starting to become very, very popular. Um, in a way of, of attracting these women back. But this report is very much not just about women who have had career pauses. This is also about women who are currently working, who are saying, 45% saying, we're working, but we're currently looking for another job because we're not happy. Is there a sense that business is getting to grips with these concerns? I think we've made enormous progress. And we really wanted to let this, you know, we really wanted to bring this report out, not as a stick, but as a carrot to business to say, we honestly have made enormous progress. And I think COVID helped everybody understand that remote and flexible working is possible. However, we've seen an interesting debate happening in the last couple of years of businesses starting to consider, do we bring everybody back in office? And what this report shows is is that that's not going to help with your diversity. This isn't going to help with this long-term phenomenon and reality of a a larger female workforce entering the market. And if you're going to recognize 
that there's more educated women entering the market and you're going to have a long-term strategy on how do you build diversity in your organization to retain and attract. You're going to have to embrace flexibility and not reject it at this point. Philippa Geard, some uh, very useful insight there and uh, one hopes that business is uh, listening. Thank you very much for joining me on the program. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. And finally, I never thought I'd say this, but Roybos has entered the virtual gaming realm. A new survival game called Enshrouded has Roybos growing in Nomad Highlands. It's an expansive virtual land located in the heart of the game that's filled with valuable resources. More now from Adele de Toy, who speaks for the Roybos Council. Adele, firstly then, what drove the decision to go the gaming route? So this wasn't really um, something that came from the council. It was developed by Keen Games in Germany, um, and they decided to include Roybos in this game. And it actually took us by surprise. Who knew that Roybos is now available online and not just in the Western Cape where it exclusively grows um, and is indigenous Mm. to South Africa? So you were very happy to, to go along with this concept then? Absolutely. Roybos is seeing very different spaces where it's entering. Like last year, at the end of last year, it was named one of the top 10 colors for the New York Fashion Week for winter and um, autumn. So we're seeing Roybos being much more exposed in very different platforms than we used to. So given that you, Adele, or your organization is the custodian of uh, of, of the brand and of of, of the look of Roybos. I imagine that it was critical for you to ensure the authenticity of representation as far as the Roybos was concerned. So what sort of process did you go through in that respect? Absolutely. So the way Roybos is depicted in the game in Shrouded is actually very close to real life. So Roybos has um, tiny needle-like leaves and it's depicted the way it looks in some in spring actually where rooibos has little yellow flowers and that's the way it shows up in the game we didn't have any um, exposure to the gamers beforehand so we're very happy that it actually is represented very close to what it actually looks like so in very simple terms then and i am not a gamer i need to make that very clear um how does this work What, what 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 do i see when i when i start playing so uh, you wake up as a uh, the last remnants of an ancient civilization, and what happens then is you ha- are against this evil force called the Shroud, um, and then you have to basically play a survival game. So what you do is you raid chests, and you can actually go into fields and farm, or actually get natural resources like from trees. And this is where Roibos comes in. So it's one of the natural refo- resources that you can use so what you can either do is plant the seeds and do make a plantation or you can drink the tea and some of the users or the gamers have actually said that if you use robust tea it increases stamina in the game it's interesting and that that's a that's a that's an interesting observation it's interesting that a game like this though would need to be environmentally responsible because one small step in making a mistake and that could have serious repercussions Yes, and I think obviously when you look at gaming, it's more fantasy and, and it's a way where people you know, live out things that they can't do in real life. But what's interesting is them including Roybos and it being also quite a rare commodity in the game. But if you include natural elements and things that actually do exist like Roybos, firstly, it'll heighten its awareness of that plant, but also it gives that connection to the real world. 
Why do you think rooibos is becoming so popular worldwide? You've mentioned uh, Germany to me. We've also seen this reduction of tariffs from uh, uh, 15, 30% to 6% as far as exports to China are con- is concerned. Uh, what's the sudden interest in all of this? So uh, it might look like an overnight success, but it's something that's been building up for decades. And one of the things that the council does is obviously to really promote robots for its health benefits and also do research to really substantiate those benefits that we communicate and market. But worldwide, robots is seeing much increase. You'll see some of the top exports markets include Japan. That's actually the biggest market. And they drink robots because they're very much interested in anti-aging. We know their population is aging. Uh, Germany is also one of the top five. And robots drinks make up about 10% of the tea drinking in Germany. And then some of the other countries that are big exporters are the Netherlands, the UK and the US. And all of those nations, or most of them are big tea drinking nations, and they really are interested in the unique story of rooibos. Rooibos also was awarded the protected designation of origin um, um, status in the European Union, and this means that rooibos is classified like champagne or port. It's the first African food actually to get that status, and what it means really is that Europeans are recognizing rooibos for its authenticity and its uniqueness, and of course, it's it's it, indigenous to South Africa that just makes the story so much more compelling. And just finally, Adele, early days, but are you anticipating a rise in demand for Roybos as a result of this game? Absolutely. When we look at gaming, there's about 3 billion people around the world that play games. Most of them probably haven't even been exposed to anything remotely like rooibos So it will heighten the awareness of rooibos Hopefully people will... Um, research and go and see what the product is all about and we're also being exposed to a whole new demographic that we didn't have before so it's really exciting times. Adele de Toy thank you very much indeed. And finally on our online poll today how to improve female representation in leadership positions we've just been speaking about it Uh, gender quotas, targeted leadership training or flexible work policies. If you have a view on that I'd invite you to go to MoneyWeb on Twitter also on our LinkedIn page. MoneyWeb at midday we are live at noon weekdays then up as a podcast thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.